Welcome to We Sing the Bass Electric, a podcast for bass lovers and music enthusiasts of all genres. Join us as we revisit some of the most iconic recordings from different bassists, past and present, discussing behind-the-scene insight and stories that made up some of the most revered albums of our time, all from a bass player's point of view. Now here's your host, international recording artist, Mr. Christian Day Masonis, a.k.a. Big New York. One summer evening in 1969, our featured guest was about to make music history. As he took the stage, little did he know at the time that he and his bandmates would forever be immortalized. The word Woodstock and the phrase the summer of 69 would be inextricably tied to his legacy. The performance of 10 years after would come to be revered as one of the highlights of this iconic four-day music festival with his fierce, aggressive finger-style attack, his presence was hard to ignore. Celebrating over 50 years as a bassist, songwriter, producer, and most recently a YouTube celebrity, we sing the Bass Electric welcomes the incomparable Leo Lyons. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that was a tongue twister, incomparable. Leo Lyons, yes. All right. Um, um, you were known to play with an aggressive right hand finger style attack. Yes. First learn on an upright bass? <clears throat> no, no, I didn't, but I, there were very few um, bass guitars around at the time. So I listened to a lot of upright bass players. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one in particular, when I was really young, was Bill Black, Elvis's bass player. Yes. I, I wanted to play that rockabilly style. And that's how I, I guess, I, I hit the bass so hard. And then I, I got interested in, in jazz players and one thing and another, but I was always listening to upright bass. All right. You actually also had this uh, unique approach with your right hand where you flicked the, the string up and down with your index finger. I, I noticed that and, and I... I thought to myself, I saw another bass player doing that technique. That, that was um, Chuck Rainey. Did you have any, uh, did you pay attention to uh, bass players like Chuck Rainey at the time or this was all I, you? No, I listened to them. No, I don't know. It, it, everything was intuitive with me, really. I didn't um, study anybody's technique as such. I, 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 actually, that's a little bit of a lie. I, I did get the Ray Brown bass method and I, and I tried to learn, if, you know, all the scales referred fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh scales. I don't know how far I got through it before I was already doing lots of gigs, but but otherwise, I I I would say that um, Bill Black was what made me hit my bass so damned hard, and um, listening to you know Count Basie and Duke Ellington and uh, trios like the, the uh, Bill Evans trio with Scott bass player Scott Lafaro, which got me into that really fast playing. Mm. Although I actually never saw him play, but um, I listened to well, listened to a lot of that stuff in the early things, and then by the seventies, I think I, I was just listening to music. It sounds terrible, but I was just listening to music. I wasn't specifically listening to the bass part, and I was develop. I guess I was developing my ear because I, I'm a songwriter too, so lyrics are, are very important to me. Yes, yes. Uh, you didn't care. You didn't think about alternating fingers or anything like that this was that I just guess, happened yeah it just happened pretty well, much I, I started playing guitar 
um, although I never played in a band, so I played with a pick and, and when I got a bass, and, which was a shock of playing something an octave lower. Mm -hmm. um, I was using a pick and then I played with my thumb and then I played with my fingers and then I realized I was sometimes I was mostly now I think I use two fingers, sometimes I use three. Um, okay. But it, it's something that developed. And, and the one thing, and you're a bass player, and you know that each finger has a different tone. So sometimes I'll stick with one finger because it gives me a better tone. Uh, you know what? But it's true. It, it is a fact. It's a, it's a proven scientific fact. Really? I've never thought about that. Well, if, something... if you're doing an eight, an eight thing, you know, like, um, oh, if you're doing a... If you're using two, yes, yes, there's, there's quite a difference between the the, um, the sound. I'm a little bit rusty, you know. Usually, no. I play at least every day. Not, you know, <laughs> there isn't usually a year gap. <laughs> yes, uh, we'll get to that too. Also, yeah. I'll talk about that. So. I also want to bring something up because, you know, you actually became a professional musician at the age of 16. Right. You know, you were landing these great gigs. I mean, the Star Club in Germany and then yeah. uh, the residency at the Marquee Club in London. Uh, this had to have a profound impact on your playing style and also your um, endurance as a, as a bass player on stage. Can you tell us a little bit about those early days and with such a busy well, schedule? Yes. I mean, did you have ample time to rehearse at all? Did you have any time to I, rehearse? We were never, Alvin and I were never greatly into rehearsing. I mean, we'd half hear a song and then we'd do it. And, and sometimes if you listen to some of the, the old rock songs, you realize that maybe we changed the chords a little bit because we never learned them or Alvin didn't really learn the third verse. We only did two verses. So we, <clears throat> we, were, we were a jam band to start with in, in many ways. But when we went to Hamburg in 1960, Two, um, we were, we were playing an hour on, an hour off throughout the night, and and you've been in a, in a functions band or this, that, and the other. That's what gets your chops up because you have to play. You're playing four or five hours a night. It really makes the band, and um, that's where we 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 learned our uh, the, the basis of our style. Really, how do you make a two minute song last for twenty minutes? Is jam movement. <laughs> And that's, that's what we did. So we got our rehearsing on the stage, isn't that say? Yes. All right. Uh, looking back to your debut self-release in 1967, the band was recorded on a four-track, yet the tone of your bass was pronounced and articulate. Uh, this is a three-part question. Uh, mm -hmm. What bass did you use on that recording? And what input, if any, did you have with the engineers during the recording of those well, first four studio albums? The engineer that recorded that album was the engineer that auditioned us for a failed audition at Decca Studios, wow. a guy called Gus Dodgen. I, I remember Gus saying to me um, when he was doing the audition, there's a buzz on your amp. And I arrogantly said, it must be something to do with your wiring. <laughs> <laughs> We didn't go down that well, but uh, you know, subsequently we got on really well. But when we went in to do the recording, I, I had the, the one bass, the, the 62 jazz bass, mm -hmm. and I, I recorded through a, a Vox AC30 Super Twin. Oh, okay. And you know, as you said, it was four tracks. So drums, drums, bass, um, 
maybe a, a rhythm guitar or keyboard all went down across two tracks. So there were no overdubs. So you, you, you'd get your basic track over two tracks and then you'd have one track left for a vocal or keyboard or a backing vocal, you know, to make the four. And then they, it was, they did what they called reduction down to mono down to, at the time. Stereo was just coming in, but... Uh, do you, you uh, did you, or did you have any concerns about how you wanted your bass to be mixed during those sessions? Did you, were you able to say, hey, Gus, uh, I don't like the way that sounds. Can we do it over again? Or were they? Not, uh... not really. I mean, but basically they, like most bands that you go in, you've got, you've got your live set and you try to replicate the live set in a studio environment, which, which is also very difficult. But that's what we tried to do. But um, I'd had some experience because I'd been working as a session musician before that. I, I started, so I'd, I'd, I wasn't um, unused to working in a studio. I have to remember in those days, musicians weren't even allowed into the control room. You know, they, they, played the, they played the track back to you over a speaker in the studio and said, we're happy with it. And you'd say, yeah, okay. I'm pleased wow. to be here. Just pleased <laughs> to be here. Yeah, yeah, I know, especially when you have backing, you have some kind of interest, you know, it's like it, it, you weren't just doing everything yourself. I mean, you had somebody actually, you know, looking at you guys and and yeah. uh, so, oh so my they, God. You know, I, yeah. I think we had a, a, an empathy with, with the engineer and, and Mike Vernon, the producer. So there was no, um, well, I think it should be this and I think it should be that. There really wasn't that much of a problem in, in those early days. Mm -hmm. uh, we went in and we did it and, and the sessions, you know, sessions were weird that there were corporate sessions, um, sort of 9.30 to 12.30 with a tea break and 2.30 to 5.30 finish, you know. Yeah. So it's two, three hour sessions yeah. over a period and, and we were doing gigs, you know, every night and then back in and then record, so. Your performance at Woodstock in 1969, was plagued with technical issues associated with poor weather conditions. The yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah, the humidity actually affected the tuning of your guitars. What do you remember most about that moment during that time in, on stage while all of this was happening? Well, I guess it was a nightmare, but the whole day was a nightmare and as much that there was a storm before we went on and we traveled so far to get there and we had no food and there was no dressing room, and, you know, you could, you could be a miserable bastard or you could say 50 years later, my God, I was lucky to have been there. And I, I would say I was lucky to have been there, but at the time I was probably thinking, you know what? I wouldn't mind a hotel room and a meal. <laughs> um, so we, were, we wanted to get on and we wanted to get on. And when we got on, of course, this whole stage was flooded with water. There were cables running and in between the cables, there was water running and, and health and safety nowadays, of course, would never have allowed that to happen. Stage was slipping down the hill in the mud, and I mean it. It was a total mess. What the positive side was: the audience was so energetic, so enthusiastic, so vibed up. We started the show, and we just had to get through it, no matter what happened. So, you know, it, it goes out of tune. You stop, and you tune up, and it goes out of tune. And bear in mind, there were no no such things as tuners. It was either give me an E on a piano or a tuning fork. <laughs> and under, under stressful situations, that's never the ideal way to tune up. No. Um, 
So the, the tuning was, I mean, I've heard the, the, the in-between takes. I've heard the takes now. Last year I heard them, but I heard the in-between takes where the tuning was horrendous. Wow. Absolutely horrendous. And on top of all that, I've actually broke a string too. And, uh, and I think it was before we played I'm Going Home, which we came back and did as an encore, but he broke a string and he went off stage. No spare guitars, nothing. Just one guitar. That's all anybody ever had in those days. Wow. And um, he went off to change his tune, his, his, a string, and I ended up talking to the audience, for, which I think they've taken out of the record, but I ended up talking to the audience for however long it took him to change it. <laughs> he didn't have a comedy routine uh, back I used to do a comedy routine, yeah, yeah. I had all sorts of things. Can you hear me at the back? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we did a few, a few things. Uh, th that's cool. That's cool. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm used to talking to. I, I'm not very good in a room of three people, but I, I can talk to this twenty thousand people. It doesn't faze me at all. Yeah, Somebody I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I actually agree with you on that. I'm more comfortable on stage. So, you know, that's like my home. You know, I, yeah. I love the feeling of that. All right. Um, as a bass player, I admired how you maintained a larger-than-life presence on stage. You definitely held your own against the charismatic guitar playing of Alvin Lee, who was quoted as saying that Woodstock was the beginning of the end for the band. He felt that the band had gone in a more commercial direction, yet I'd love to change the world from the 1971 Columbia release of Space and Time represents the height of the band's success. Did you agree? With his sentiment at all, and what was your take on the the band that it and its recording during that period? Well, you know, from from obscurity to success took took nine years, maybe ten years. Um, it was something we'd worked towards, so I I I was quite happy to have got there. Um, I I think in retrospect, when we actually got there, Alvin started to question as to whether he wanted to be there or not. He didn't like the attention. He didn't like one thing or the other. Um, and so, in his, from his point of view, he could well have said that, um, well, he did, he did say, oh yeah, it was the beginning of the end. And he said to our manager at the time, um, Chris Ride, our manager, we're too big, de-escalators, and we actually, a lot of people don't know this, we actually took a year off to see if we could see things, to let things die down. I can understand, I can understand the way he, he now, <laughs> I can understand the way he felt about it was just too much for him. Um, at the time, I thought, why have we work, all worked so damned hard to get here? And when it's all on a plate for us, we're just <laughs> going to say, no, thank you. Yeah. Forget it. We're too big. Let someone else do it. <laughs> you know, well, as a musician, you can tell yourself that. You got, you're playing a pub with 10 people and they've all got the back turned towards you. Then all of a sudden you can do two shows a night playing to 25,000 people. And you say, no, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I don't know. Uh, did you get along with him pretty well? I mean, did you have a good yeah, we were like, Because we grew up together and we shared so much together. Oh, we fought a lot too, you know. Mm -hmm. We did fight a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, up to a point, um, any arguments were always over um, BAMP policy, What you know. Like, do we want to take a year off right at the height of our success or, yeah. you know, 
What's the problem with playing Madison Square Gardens? Just because some dope has told you it's not a cool place to play. You're telling me that's the reason you don't want to do it. You know, yeah. those kind of arguments. Um, but otherwise, okay, yeah. I, I was lucky. I was very lucky. I didn't, you know, looking back on my life, I've had quite a bit of success. I, I should not have necessarily relied on staying with the same band to do it. I, I, if I had to have one regret, I, I, maybe I should have moved on and uh, done other things, but I didn't. And I've had some wonderful times, so no complaints at all without any of them. Let's talk about the holy grail of electric bass, your okay. 1962 Fender Jazz Woodstock bass. Okay. How often did you use that bass and how many albums can it be heard on? Um, every album up until the last two, I should think. Wow, that, um, that's incredible. Which would, the last two would be um, About Time and, no, maybe that was it, About Time, probably. So that would be the one. But we also used it on all the UFO records I produced and also the, some of the other records, the Magnum records I produced. Oh, you, you, you lent it to Pete Way? Yeah. Only, on the, only for the recordings, obviously. I, yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you have that bass insured with the Lords of London? And if no. you do, how much is it insured for? I would imagine $50,000, maybe more. If you were insured, I have no idea. I, I, <laughs> I just hide it. <laughs> you, you have to insure that bad boy because that, that to me, that, that to me is like, look, I, I, I love boutique basses, don't get me wrong, but yeah. um, that is, that bass is probably worth $100,000, I would imagine so. I've turned that down, so yeah, it's worth more, I think. Yeah, so that that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, has the Fender Custom Shop approached you to do a Leo Lyons 62 bass? Uh, well, it's an interesting thing. When I first yeah. moved to Nashville, I, I spoke to the, the rep in in LA and he said you know we should do a bass of yours and I said well I'm, I wasn't calling about that I just wanted to, I've just moved to Nashville and I, th I thought it would be great if I could just raise my profile in Nashville because I, I at the time I didn't know many people and he said oh go and see the Nashville Fender rep and I said I said okay so I went to see the Nashville Fender rep and and he was such a pain in the ass. he said okay what, what do you want are you trying to get a free bass I said, no, man, I just wanted to touch, you know, touch base with you and say hi and this, that, and let you know I'm in town. Um, I'm not even here as a player. I'm here as a writer and, and a, an engineer, but I thought maybe just a little photograph in your magazine or something like that saying Leo's in town. Here he is in the studio. Here's his bass leaning up against the thing. Oh, well, I'll think about it, he said. Send me some of your press cuttings. And I thought, asshole. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so, so that was it as far as I was concerned, as far as Fender went. But a company in London called the Bass Centre um, approached me and said, look, we want to do a, a, a replica of your bass. And um, I, I, they were big fans and um, I agreed to do that. So what they did was they did a, um, a Leo Lines bass, um, which is Pretty, pretty much similar, you know, to, to that's the same. Yeah, they even took the finish off and everything. Um, yeah, yeah. And you want to know something? Looking at both bases, I, I know our audience will be able to see this if it's uh, yeah. 
podcast version, but looking at both of them, it looks like you shine that that 62 Fender every day. I mean, it's got a the, the fingerboard's got a nice shine to it. I mean, what, what are you? This has got to be your baby, right? You take care of this baby like a he's like an infant. It, yeah, it, it's considering the amount of work he's done. Um, it's been refretted a few times, but um, mm. I've, yeah, I've looked after it. I, I was concerned about people stealing it, as, as you, you would be. So I always tried to replace the base by another one that looked like it. And I was 62, I find one. And, and I've had three, but I never found one that I liked as much as the, the, my original one, which I bought secondhand, funny enough. Not new. But, uh, that uh, that base center uh, tribute base to you is available for sale now, today, you can yes. order it? Yeah, yeah. Do you know what price they're asking for? Do you have any idea? I think they have two things. I think they do a Korean thing, which is modestly priced, and then but the full custom thing is... I don't know what currently it is. It's expensive. It's it's up there in the custom base things. Best thing to do is contact um, Barry Morehouse at uh, the base center. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll look into that. While I was you know researching you, I went on Reverb.com and I found yeah. um I found a '68 base that was in excellent condition. That what they wanted. Uh, I believe it was it was originally five. Five and a half for it, and I think it's on sale for about 40, 47, 4700. And I, I mean, you know, I've had Fender P's in my life, uh, in, in my career, but I've never had a Fender Jazz. And well, you, um, you, you want the pre CBS Jazz, yes, yeah, if you're going to get one. P's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I have P's, I, I've got, I've actually got a, still got a P base, but tell um, me. That's what I started out in 1960 with the P bass. Just so happened that in 62, the jazz bass came out and I love the look of the chrome and I like the thinner neck. Mm. And I was doing a gig. Actually, I, I, somebody in um, Hamburg had one and, and I played that one of the bands. And um, when I came back, we were doing a gig in, in the UK and we played with this band and the guy in the band had a jazz bass. And I asked him if I could have a look at it. And he, he said, yeah, I just I just bought it from a school teacher that was giving up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guitar player, really, but, you know, I, need, I got this bass gig. And I, I said to him, um, do you want to sell it? So we, we agreed. I think I gave him 15, 15 pounds or 25 pounds of my P bass for his jazz bass. And that guy was Ian Hunter. Yeah. And he looks great today. You know, he's still, he's, yeah. I just saw him on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, yeah. episode, one of the uh, old, I guess it was 2018 or 19, where he got on stage with Def Leppard. He, I, he yeah. looks, he looks phenomenal and he yeah. sounds great. Wow. Yeah, well, Ian's still got my P bass. Mm, check After that out. This concludes part one of our conversation with Leo Lyons. Join us for part two, where Leo and I discuss his extensive bass collection and his latest work with 170 Split. If you enjoyed this educational music program, please subscribe to We Sing the Bass Electric on your favorite podcast platform. We would love your feedback. Email us at wesingthebasselectric at gmail.com. For bonus material, and a chance to win merchandise such as autographed CDs and more, subscribe to our YouTube channel 
and join our mailing list at WeSingTheBassElectric.com. As always, thank you for your support. And please buy music from these spotlighted artists. It makes a difference. 